Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. In 2020, we have been reading through the Bible together. We are currently learning from the prophets of Israel, who deliver God's intentions and promises by pronouncing judgment and proclaiming hope. Join us as we wrestle through the prophecies and see how they reveal the hope of Jesus, the Christ, the King. If you are able, we would love to see you at one of our services in person. We invite you to go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. The Fiery Furnace, taken from Daniel chapter 3. When King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, he made many of the people go with him as slaves to Babylon. Among the captives were four young men, whose names were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These young men loved God, and they were careful to obey God's laws. God blessed them because they were obedient, and he made them very wise. Soon, the king chose them to be his own helpers. One day, the king made a huge statue of gold and set it up where everyone could see it. Then he commanded all of his people to bow down and worship the statue. If they didn't obey, they would be thrown into a fiery furnace. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down and worship the king's statue. They would only worship God. This made King Nebuchadnezzar very angry. He gave them a second chance to obey his command. But the three men said, we won't do it. If you throw us into the fiery furnace, our God is able to save us, and he will. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to your gold statue. The king was furious. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than ever before. Then his soldiers threw the three men into the furnace. The furnace was so hot that even the soldiers were killed by the heat. But then the king saw an amazing thing. The three men in the furnace did not burn up. Instead, they walked around inside the furnace. The king also saw a fourth person in the furnace. It was an angel. God had sent an angel to protect the men. Come out, the king called to the three men, and they did, and they were not hurt at all. Then the king believed that their God really was God. Hey, Waterstone. Good to be with all of you today. My name is uh, Paul Joslin, and I'm the teaching pastor. Excited to be worshiping with you tonight. Before we jump into the message, I just want to give a couple uh, quick updates about some things that have happened in the life of our church over the last uh, few weeks. First is, many of you know Larry went in for surgery uh, last week on um, prostate cancer. And if you haven't heard, there were a few complications that developed as a result of that surgery. And so he was actually in the hospital for about six days instead of the uh, original one that they thought he was going to be in. Um, and he and Jan wrote an update that they just wanted us to share with you all uh, about some of their journey over the last week. So I'm just going to read their words so you can hear a little bit about how they've been doing. Larry came home from the hospital late uh, last Monday night on August 3rd. Because of complications from the surgery, he has drains in both his kidneys and his abdomen. It will take some time to drain the abdomen and allow the internal damage to heal uh, and to seal. And so Larry and Jan, they are in good hearts 
in mind. Um, they're able to take short walks together, and they're developing some daily rhythms that are rebuilding uh, more strength each day. Um, we would just ask that you please pray for sleep, which has been difficult because of the drains Larry has. Thank you so much for how you've prayed and supported us through this time. We strongly sense God's love through your cards, texts, and prayers. If you would like to reach out to them, you can email Kenya at Kenya S um, to give Larry and Jan a note of encouragement, or if you uh, mail a letter to the church, we can make sure that gets to them as well. But please continue praying uh, for Larry. I saw him on Wednesday, got to spend a little bit of time with him, and I know he's been um, going through a lot, but as they said, he is in good spirits. Um, the other update that I wanted to let you all know about is uh, two weeks ago, I mentioned at the end of service that uh, the Persichetti family, um, their young daughter, Cassandra, who was 17, developed a blood clot uh, in her brain. And so we spent time praying for them that morning. Um, later that week, uh, heartbreakingly, Cassandra went home to be with Jesus. Um, and so she passed away on July 28th. Um, we held a funeral uh, and a memorial service for her on Friday. Uh, it was a beautiful time uh, celebrating her life. She was a beautiful, beautiful soul um, and impacted uh, countless people. Um, so we want to take some time tonight to pray for both Larry and the Persichetes who are going through such a, a devastating loss. So if you would, please uh, bow your heads and pray with me. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, God, there are some weeks and some moments in life uh, where it feels like too much. Um, God, for, for Larry, uh, we miss him and we want him back. Um, what was supposed to be a fairly routine and uh, easy surgery developed so many complications. And so we just pray for uh, restored health to him. We pray for healing. Um, for his body and the doctors uh, to be able to, to make Larry whole again so we can have him back. And Father, for the Persichetti family, just walking through uh, such an unimaginable loss, God, we pray for your comfort. We pray for your kindness, for your compassion, and for your grace on them as they grieve. We pray that as their family um, and as the body of Christ, we would come around them, support them, love them, and care for them, and that through our actions, through our prayers, and through our kindness, they would know uh, your love, Father. Um, and Father, finally, we don't always already feel the, the devastation of the fall here, um, close to home, but we also know that uh, globally it was felt in a new way this week with what happened in Lebanon. And so we lift up that country and those people to you, God, um, with the, the terrible uh, accident that happened there. Uh, we pray for healing for that community and for that country. We pray for aid to be able to make it in and for, um, yeah, for you to be in that situation. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. So, it is no secret uh, at all that we live in a culture, in a world that is rapidly changing and shifting, right? Um, I love talking with my grandma, uh, who was born in 1933, 
about some of the changes that she's seen in the world since she was born. And so oftentimes she'll tell me stories about how on the small farm in Iowa that she grew up in, uh, the moment that they got the landline put in their home when she was a kid, or the, the moment that they got their icebox and didn't have to put their food in the underground bunker anymore, or the moment that they got their first family car. I mean, the changes that she has seen over her lifetime uh, to mine are just remarkable. It's incredible how fast the world has moved. If you think about it, we landed on the moon 50 years ago, and now we are having conversations about people taking vacation on the moon. Like, what? What is the world we live in? What's fascinating is when I talk to my grandma about all the ways that she has seen the world change, the number one thing that she says was the game changer, was the biggest event of her lifetime, was the invention of the computer. The first computer came about shortly after she was born. This is a picture of what one of the first computers looked like. It was aptly named Colossus, pretty large. When I was a kid, this is what computers looked like. A Little bit different. Anybody remember those, those Mac computers, the iMac? And then now we all know that computers look like this, right? I mean, this is more powerful than anything in that machine. The world has changed so, so fast, so rapidly. And it's not just technology that we've seen shifted. We've also felt shifts in our culture. We felt shifts in what we perceive as the normal way of operating in society. Morally, our culture has shifted drastically, very, very rapidly. We have shifted in things that we thought we knew were true. For instance, I would argue that as a nation, Christianity or some sort of religion has always been something that we have adhered to. That, that religion and a relationship with God, whatever that religion may be, has been important to American society. Just listen to how some of that has shifted over the last few years. The World Values Survey has done a survey for about 20 years where they have asked Americans what the importance of God is in their life. In 2006, 5% of Americans said that God is not at all important to their daily life. Five years later, in 2011, 11% of Americans said that God is not at all important in their lives. And get ready for this. In 2017, 43% of Americans said that God is not at all important in their lives. I mean, the shifts that have happened and taken place in that amount of time, it feels like someone has just taken our culture and put it on warp speed. And we see that too in, in things that we had always adhered to that we believed to be true. Take, for instance, the Ten Commandments. I would argue that for most of our history, the Ten Commandments would be accepted widely in our culture as, as true. And so commands like, do not murder or do not steal, were widely accepted. But now there's a lot of debate and conversation about those different commands. Take, for instance, the first commandment, have no other God before me. We now live in a pluralistic society where religion is fair game. You can believe in any God you want to. You can borrow from this religion. You can borrow from that religion. You can borrow a little bit from Christianity, a little bit from Buddhism, melt it all together and come out with the God that you think best represents who you want to worship. Or for instance, 
the idea that we're not supposed to tell lies. It doesn't really hold up in our cultural climate anymore. Truth is relative. I mean, we have alternative facts. Two people can look at the exact same event and pull truth in two drastically different ways. And both would claim truth. Truth is relative. Ultimate truth is a thing of the past. Or think about conversations around sex, particularly sex outside of marriage. I mean, for a while it was just assumed, and and probably not as widely as we would like to think, but it was assumed that sex was reserved for marriage. Now not only is it accepted, but it is expected to sleep with someone before you marry them to make sure that you're compatible. That doesn't even get into all of the conversations about gender and identity, about orientation. I mean, our culture has shifted drastically in conversations about sex. Or finally, what about murder? What is the value of a human life? When does life begin? Whose life is more valuable? Whose life is worth protecting and saving? And this has implications far-reaching in our society from everything from, from abortion to immigration. Whose life is worth protecting? I mean, our culture has shifted so rapidly. It's hard to know how to navigate these different cultural norms as they shift. I was talking to someone a few weeks ago that said, I just kind of want to give up. I can't keep up with it all. And the question for us is how do we follow Jesus in a culture shifting this drastically and this often? How do we hold on to some semblance of ultimate truth in a culture that says truth is relative? How do we live faithfully How do we believe in God in an unbelieving society and culture? What do we as the people of God do when our belief in God is considered bigoted and intolerant? I mean, it is a challenging time to say that you are a follower of Jesus, to claim that God of the Bible is the one true God. All of these questions are the questions that we look at tonight in the story in Daniel, in the book of Daniel. How do we, as the people of God, live counterculturally in a time of exile? That's the question at the heart behind the book of Daniel. And there's multiple stories that help unpack that question and what it looks like to be the faithful people of God in a time of exile. But we're going to look at a story that's very familiar to many of us tonight, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you've spent any time in church or, or listened to any children's stories, you've probably heard this story before, this story of these three young Hebrews who lived in a time of exile. I think the book of Daniel is incredibly relevant to today because for centuries, the people of God in Daniel's time had been living in a culture and in a society that upheld their beliefs, that allowed them and encouraged their belief in Yahweh. And all of a sudden, the moment the exile happens, their belief is challenged. They suddenly are taken from a society and a culture that supports their belief into a culture that rejects their belief, that challenges their belief, where all of the institutions and governments and media and education systems are all bent on saying that there is no ultimate truth, 
that there is no one true God. And that is the context that we find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in. In this pluralistic society committed to the belief and principle that there were many gods and many moralities, all of which are equally valid in that culture. Now, immediately, when you have a culture or a group of people that says truth is relative, morality is relative, worship is relative, and you have a group of people who say, we have one true God who teaches us morality in the way we should live, there's immediately conflict. There's immediately tension. And that's where we pick up the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this tension over a king who comes and he sets up and erects this statue. And he says, all of the tribes and tongues and nations of the world that we have conquered have to come before this statue and worship this statue. To bend the knee to this statue. Now what's interesting is we don't actually have a very clear idea of what the statue is. Some people have have speculated that it's a statue of the king Nebuchadnezzar. The problem with that is that we actually don't have any proof that the kings of Babylon were worshipped as deities. Some people have said that the statue is, is maybe a representation of the Babylonian gods, that it's a representation of their most powerful god, Naboo. The problem with that is that any time the Bible sets up a conflict between God and another god, they're always named. And so if this was a story about God proving that he's more powerful than than the gods of Babylon, you would expect for the authors to name it. But it remains unnamed. And throughout the story, it leaves it open-ended as to what this statue represents. And what I think we need to realize is that the statue in this story is supposed to represent the spirit of Babylon, the spirit of empire. You see, Babylon was smart, and when they conquered nations, when they conquered other cities, when they conquered other countries, they didn't force those people to worship their gods. They said, you can have freedom to worship whatever gods you hold to. You also have to worship Babylon. And so they were allowed to live in this tension. They knew that if they they didn't allow people freedom of worship, that people would reject and revolt and rebel against their rule. And so as a way to pacify, they created this pluralism where everyone was allowed to worship their gods that they grew up with, that they held dear, but also had to begin worshiping Babylon. And so what really King Nebuchadnezzar is saying in this worship of this statue is that you can worship any god you wish as long as you don't worship it exclusively. Because the moment you start worshiping your God exclusively and rejecting our God and our religion and our state, you threaten the peace and prosperity of our nation. And so the expectation is these people, these leaders of all the different provinces come together to worship Babylon and give their allegiance to this empire. And that's the moment that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have to make a decision. They have to choose where does our allegiance lie? to the empire of Babylon, or to Yahweh. See, it's fascinating. When you read the book of Daniel, you see that the the people of God, they make compromises in a lot of different places. They accept the culture. They accept customs. They dress like Babylonians. They even change their names to Babylonian names in ways that might even make us uncomfortable. They accept names that their names mean the worship of gods of Babylon. And yet, what you see in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is a refusal to lose their identity as the people of God. 
a refusal to give their ultimate allegiance to Babylon. And so they make the choice to stand instead of kneeling to the empire. They choose their faith over the empire. And it makes people angry. That threatens the peace and the prosperity of our empire. You can't do that. And so the, the people who see them stand and not kneel, they do what all brave and courageous people do. They go and they tattletale on them. And they tell the empire and the emperor Nebuchadnezzar, these people will not worship the statue that you have put in place. They will reject your decrees and your commandments. And they are a threat to your rule and reign. And Nebuchadnezzar is furious. Oh, he's so mad. He just fraws at the mouth. He's full of rage. And he calls them before him and he says, how dare you not kneel? Please, I, you, I, I just want you to explain yourself. Why would you not do this? I'll give you a moment. Collect yourselves. Tell me why you won't kneel before my statue. And this is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to him in 316 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they replied to him. They say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. A better way to, to potentially read that would be, if the God we believe in exists, he is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. You notice how respectful they are? Your majesty, we just can't do what you ask. We can't worship the gods that you want us to. We don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have to attack back. We just have to say no. And it makes Nebuchadnezzar even more furious. And so he tells them to turn the furnace up seven times hotter than it already was. This, this furnace that was made for, for melting metal. And he says, throw them in, bind them, keep their clothes on so that they'll, they'll have good kindling and catch on fire. And he throws them into the furnace. But you know the story. They don't burn up. They're thrown into the furnace. And all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar sees not three men, but four. One like the Son of God. And he's overwhelmed and he's overcome. And he says, release them, bring them out of the furnace, set them free. And then you can tell he's grown a lot because he says that this God is now the God that we worship. But if you refuse to worship him, I will cut you into pieces and kill you. So he's become way more tolerant than he was before the story began. It's a fascinating story of this interaction between the tension we feel as followers of God and mandates and, and expectations that are placed on us by society, ways that we're expected to conform. And I'd like to take a minute just to take four observations about this story that we're very familiar with, but actually has so much richness and depth to it. Four observations that I think give us an idea of what it means and what it looks like to live in exile, to remember what it is to live counterculturally in a time of exile. And so the first one is this. I think that we need to remember that if we want to live counterculturally in a time of exile, we have to remember where it is that we live. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all remembered that they were living in exile, that Babylon was not their home. 
They remember that this place that they are, are find themselves in was not the place that they grew up. It was not the place that they belonged. Babylon wasn't their home. They may have taken Babylonian names. They may have dressed like Babylon. They may have adopted Babylonian customs, but they remembered that Babylon was not their home. If we want to live faithfully in exile, we have to remember that this is not our home, that we too live in Babylon. That may be somewhat of a controversial statement because I think there's a lot of confusion among Christians about the place we find ourselves in history. I think a lot of us would like to imagine that the place we live is a type of new Israel, that we're a type of new people of God. But we have to recognize that the place we find ourselves in is a continuation of Babylon. It may be a gentler Babylon, a kinder Babylon. It may be the most just and best Babylon that's existed, but it is still Babylon. It is still empire. It is not our home and it is not the kingdom of God. We have to remember that where we live is not our home. Because if we really are living in exile, then there will come a time where our allegiance will be tested, where we too will be expected and asked to bow down to the things that our culture upholds and worships. There will come a time when people say that you can't believe in your God, you have to believe and let everything be open and tolerant of all beliefs. There will come a time where we are challenged to give up our positions of power and authority in order to follow Jesus and not compromise our identity. You see, the truth that we learn from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that we cannot serve God and people please. We can't serve God and popular opinion. We can't serve God and the bitterness that we might feel towards those who inhabit our space with us. We can't serve God and serve our pride. We can't serve God and our own self-interest. If we live in exile, our allegiance will be tested. And it leaves us confused if we think that we're not in exile, if we assimilate to the culture at hand and think that we can just go about our business and it won't be a challenge, that there won't be tension and that there won't be conflict. So we have to remember that we live in exile. The second thing that I think we have to remember in order to live counterculturally effectively is that we have to remember to seek God first. A few weeks ago, we looked at a letter from Jeremiah where he was living in Judah and writes to the exiles in Babylon, and he tells them about how they should live in exile. And it's in Jeremiah 29, um, 12 and 13 that he says this, then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. See, he writes to the exiles, and he says, if you want to live effectively in exile, you have to remain faithful to God, and you have to devote yourself to seeking him first above all other things. I think sometimes when we forget where we live, we forget that we are in a spiritual battle. 
We forget that to live effectively, we have to continually go before Jesus for the strength and conviction that we need and the courage that we need to live in a place that is hell-bent on stopping the advancement of the kingdom of God. We have to recognize that in order to live effectively, we have to go before Jesus again and again and again. If you want to live counterculturally in your present context, I think one of the most effective things you can do, the most countercultural thing you can do, is to pick up your Bible in the morning before your phone. To read the Gospel of John instead of hopping on Facebook to see what memes people place there. To read the Psalms instead of going on to Fox News or CNN to hear from the voice of God rather than turning on a podcast. It's so much more than just reading our Bible. It is the source and the place that we find the energy and the power and the conviction to live counterculturally in a world that does not want to see Christ's agenda advanced. And we don't think we live in exile, so we don't think it's important to our faith. So we think it's something I'll try to get around to, or it's something that that I'll pick up when I have an extra spare moment, or it's okay because I go on Sundays three times a month, so that counts for something. Folks, if we are living in a place of exile, if we are living in a space that does not want to see Jesus made known, is there anything more important, anything more countercultural we could do than to listen to his voice, allow that to fill our hearts and our souls before the media and the things that we consume in its place, that we think we don't have time for because we binge watch Netflix every night? We have to get back to seeking God first. And I know that from talking with Larry, this is his heart for Waterstone. It's been fascinating as he's been going through this journey with cancer. His number one prayer again and again and again is for the renewal of the people of Waterstone. That we would be a people that are recommitted to prayer and to fasting and to scripture. That we would be a people who live counterculturally by the strength of the Holy Spirit. That's his prayer for our church. Will we rise to that challenge? The third thing that I think we need to remember in order to effectively live counterculturally is that God is with us in the fire. That when we live in exile, when we are tempted to turn our backs, when we are driven to a place of desperation, when we feel like everything in our lives is against us, Jesus is in the fire with us. Now, I have to be honest, that statement is actually hotly contested. People look at this story, and there's some debate about whether or not it was an angel in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or if it was Jesus. Is it an epiphany or just a messenger sent from God? And the truth is, it actually doesn't really matter. I personally believe that it was Jesus there. I believe that it was an epiphany. But the reality is, it does not matter whether or not it was Jesus or an angel. The truth is the same. God has not abandoned us. God is with us in our moments of fire and desperation and devastation. He has not left us. 
in our exile. In fact, he suffers with us. No other God takes this approach. No other religion has a God who willingly and chooses to suffer with and on behalf of us. Nicholas Walterstorff says this, God is love, and that is why he suffers. To love our suffering, sinful world is to suffer. God suffered for the world that he gave up his only son to suffer. The one who does not see God's suffering does not see his love. So suffering is down at the center of things, deep down where the meaning is. Suffering is the meaning of our world, for love is the meaning, and love suffers. The tears of God are the meaning of history. There will be moments when our faithfulness causes us to suffer. There will be moments when we seek first the kingdom, seek first God's presence, and that we will pay a cost and a price. And yet we serve a God who suffers with us, who is in the fire with us. But it gets even better than that. Because the fourth and final thing that I think we need to remember in order to live faithfully in exile is that ultimately God wins. You see, most people miss this in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because we've heard it since we grew up and since we were children. But there's actually a story before that in Daniel chapter 2 that is critical to understanding the story of the statue in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see, in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, he has this dream. And in this dream, he sees a statue erected, and in this statue, it has a head of gold on it, and it has shoulders and a chest and arms of silver, and it has a a belly and a thighs of bronze and feet of iron. And he sees this statue and this impressive statue that, that stands in the heavens, and all of a sudden, a boulder rolls down from the mountain and crushes it, splinters it, destroys it. And he's troubled because he doesn't know what it means, but he knows it's not good. And so he asks all of the people to come before him, all of his wisdom, all of his his leaders, all of the people who, who are magicians to come and tell him what his dream was and interpret it for him. And if they don't, he's going to kill them all. And no one can figure out what the dream is because he won't tell them. And no one can interpret it except for Daniel who prays to God that God would reveal it to him. And God comes before the king and he says, King, what you have seen has been revealed to you by the the master of mysteries. And he says, what you have seen is the future that is to come. What's been revealed to you is that the kingdoms of this world, the Babylons, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, all of them will have their moment in time. All of them will have their moment of prominence and power in history. But after them will come a kingdom that crushes and conquers and defeats all of the empires the world has ever known. And what starts out as a boulder grows into a mountain and will fill the entire world. And what you have seen is a dream of the kingdom of heaven and what it will look like when the Messiah conquers the world. 
And the story after that, Nebuchadnezzar raises a statue of gold in defiance to the dream and the interpretation that Daniel had. My kingdom will be conquered? Uh Uh-uh. Every tribe and tongue and nation will worship me. I defy your God and your dreams. You see, that dream is what gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the strength and conviction to say, our God can deliver us from your hand. And even if he doesn't, we still cannot worship your God because your kingdom has an expiration date on it. Your kingdom will come to an end because we believe that our God Our Messiah will come and conquer all of the empires of this world. And that is the end and the hope that we're waiting for. And you may begin to pick up a bit of a pattern as we've gone through the prophets. It it usually begins with judgment and the way the people of God aren't living up to who they're supposed to be. And ends with the story of hope of a future that is to come, of a promised Messiah, of God restoring things to the way they were supposed to be. But what I love about this story of this dream is that the story doesn't wait for some eschaton, for some story at the end of history. It says that the boulder that crushes and conquers the empires of this world grows like a mountain. And looking back on history, we can see and know that the boulder that crushed and conquered the empires, that conquered death and sin was the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But that the moment he was resurrected, that stone began to grow. And the kingdom began advancing. And he began his work of restoring things back to the way it was supposed to be. And so it's not just some hope for the future that we can hang on to. It's a hope in our present moment that God is still at work. That God still saves that God still intervenes in our history, that God is intimately involved in our darkest moments and that God is working to bring about redemption on our worst day. That is good news. And I don't know about you, but I can use some good news. There's so much in this world that is broken and fallen and devastating the news that we cling to, that we hold our hope on, is that God is at work in the furnace and at the end of time. That we believe in a God who is intimately involved in our suffering and yet is the cosmic Christ who will conquer all the empires of this world. That he will establish truth and justice and mercy and compassion as the foundation of what this new heavens and new earth will be at his return. So the question for us is, can we remain faithful in exile? Can we hold on to truth in a culture, in a system, in a structure that claims truth is relative? Can we hold on faithfully to belief in an unbelieving society Can we give our allegiance to Christ and Christ alone? Because he is the only one who deserves our ultimate and full allegiance. That's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's the choice that they made. 
And that's the choice that we have before us every day. May we rise to that challenge and be the people of God who are faithful and hold on to truth and hope and love. We're going to go into a time of communion now. But before we do, um, we're going to have a moment of reflection to just pause, collect our thoughts, to prepare our hearts Justin is going to lead us in a song, and you can take whatever posture of worship you might want. You can stand, you can kneel, you can bow, you can sit. Whatever posture you need to prepare your heart for communion. You can sing along, you can just let these words wash over you. But take a moment to reflect on the Christ who is crucified for us and with us in our suffering, but who is also the cosmic Christ, the Christ who is above all of history, every empire that the world has ever known. That is the power that we have and the power of the story we believe in. So take a moment to reflect.